So we looked at marriage in the Old Testament, marriage in the New Testament, divorce in the Old Testament, divorce in the New Testament. And now we're looking at cohabitation. So what are we talking about? So this is what I think I'm talking about. I think I'm talking about a man and a woman living together in the same house, in the same abode, in the same flat, sharing the same bed, but not married in the sense understood by themselves and the culture around them. So if you said to them, are you married? They'd say, no, no we haven't. No, we, we know what getting married is. We haven't done that. We're something else. Okay? And the culture around them would say, there is such a thing as marriage. We understand there, there to be such a thing as marriage. And we can see that the, this couple, are whatever they are, they're not that. Okay? So I'm differentiating it from a casual sexual relationship. Um, this is an ongoing heterosexual relationship, so I'm not confusing the issue by going beyond that heterosexual relationship. I'm saying that in, for this definition, there is a genuine option for them to be, quote, married, but they have not or have not yet taken that option. They know this. Their family and friends know this. So I'm just repeating myself now. There is a further option to express to each other and to the world a permanent union, but they haven't done it for whatever reason. And therefore, although in many ways it looks like marriage, there is something lacking in way of a clarity of commitment to each other, a clarity of what their relationship actually is, and there is also a lack of clarity regarding the world around them. How are family and friends to regard this couple? Okay, does that make sense? So it's sort of like being married, but it isn't quite. So uh, are we happy? That, that That's what I'm going to try and talk about. It, does that make sense as a definition? Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, now we have got the uh, no, there's a microphone there, so if you it, it, so there is opportunity to for say to say things and they'll get recorded and people will be able to profit from that. So why we bother doing this? Because since now, what do you think? I think the 1960s, this has become a normal thing. 1960s, John, is that about right? Do you think uh, it wasn't like that? The swinging 60s, yes, that's right, yeah. So, if, if you watch the sort of nostalgia programs like Heartbeat, which are set in the 60s, it would, it would still be a rather radical thing for people to be living together without being married. And if you watch Foyle's War, so we're going back into the 19, 1939-45, uh, it would be, it would be um, a very... Um, strange thing to be living together without being married. And if you watch Call the Midwife, the assumption was that all the women who had children were, were married. So I think this is a recent phenomenon. So it's become a normal thing, and Christian couples might think this is normal for Christians too, unless it's actually spelled out uh, like we're doing this evening. It, uh, another reason is that there might be a cohabiting couple one of whom becomes a Christian. So that's, 
well within the bounds of possibility. And indeed, if we're praying for people to be converted, it's something, in a, in a sense, we ought to be praying for. Uh, because a cohabiting couple might become Christians. So here's so-and-so and so-and-so who actually living together, in the, not married, they become Christians. What do you say to them? Uh, I, can, I can actually remember Les Hill back in the day when so-and-so and so-and-so were going to be married, and I think he was completely shocked at the idea that they might previously have been living together, although everybody else knew that that was exactly what had been the case. So um, a cohabiting couple might become Christians. And also because people who um, are now in such and such a position might want to be able to come to terms with their own past uh, because... People have come from all sorts of different mixed up and muddled up situations and they might like to think, you know, what, what am I to make of that? How does that affect me? How am I to think of myself and my walk with the Lord? So, next point. So, what, what, how does the Bible address this? And I'm linking in with this. How is cohabitation different from marriage? So what does the Bible say to this situation? Uh, I don't think the Bible particularly addresses this situation simply because it's a relatively modern phenomenon. In, in, in the Hebrew culture, you would have had single people, married people. You would have people who were adulterous. You would have people... Uh, you would have the, well, the actuality of rape you would have prostitution, you would have concubinage, but you wouldn't have cohabitation. So the Bible doesn't particularly address that. We do know that the Old Testament fiercely guards the boundaries of marriage. So it says there's the boundaries of marriage, and sexual intimacy is within those boundaries and not to cross those boundaries. So that's a very definite thing. And in the New Testament, so when I say New Testament, I'm meaning the kingdom ethics for Christians. It follows that fierce boundary, plus it draws its, its categories, its way of thinking and its inspiration from the union of Christ with his church. So that, that's the the additional sort of genius point of the New Testament, that we have Christ and his church, which refocuses everything. And if you think of Christ and his church, the realm that we are in is of total permanent commitment. That's the realm that we're in, isn't it? So uh, that reading that I had, uh, that we had uh, from Ephesians of the husband gives himself up no Christ gives himself up for the church in the same way husbands are to uh, what does it say give themselves up does it say that what does it say he gave himself up for her husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so you get those sorts of very strong um, 
That's a command, isn't it? We know in the New Testament that human marriage is terminated only by death, with exceptions, and we might differ over quite what the exceptions are, so I'm going to say that the exception, uh, well, Jesus spells it out for pornea, uh, and I would say that he makes an exception to, uh, that he says there is such a thing as divorce and there is such a thing as remarriage for pornea, although you might say there's only the possibility of divorce but not of remarriage. And then you go on in the New Testament and Paul says there are situations that didn't occur in the time when Jesus was giving particular teaching. So of uh, a couple in which one becomes a Christian and the other remains a pagan and the pagan person won't stay uh, and there is a desertion and that also it would be the termination of the marriage in my understanding of it. So those are the things that we looked at before. So I can say the Bible does not give permission for cohabitation and the Bible does not give permission for sex outside marriage. So those are the things that we can be clear about. Does that make sense so far? So I'm not going to try and rewind into the exceptions, but those are the parameters that we're working. Those are the principles we're working with. Let's visit the idea of one flesh. So it says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So I have a reference in 1 Corinthians 6.16. So please could we look at that. And here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is dealing with Christian people who haven't got the hang of the idea that what you do with your body matters. Presumably they're thinking that spirituality is so spiritual that where your body happens to be and who it happens to be with is totally irrelevant. And he says that's not the case. The body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He says in chapter 6, verse 13, verse 14, by his power Christ raised the Lord from the dead and will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. So his argument there is that this idea of a sexual union producing or being at least part of one flesh, he says, well, that, that's, that's the case. So union with a prostitute is somehow producing a one flesh union to some extent in a very abnormal way. But he doesn't say that that produces marriage because simply to have a sexual union with somebody does not mean you're married to them, does it? Think about it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're married to them. Uh, so I would suggest that the cohabit, sorry, 
that one flesh refers to sexual union and it refers to more than sexual union. So the sexual union takes you, you know, is, is part of it, but that's not the whole, the whole thing. And if you think of, uh, no, let me, let me look at my notes because this is one of the bits that I didn't write down. So sexual union doesn't make you married, but the, the one, one flesh is more than sexual union. So the cohabiting option contains many of the ingredients of the marriage, but not all of them. So I think one flesh, so here's some thoughts about this, see what you think. I think one flesh is also to do with your social identity. So if you invite a one-flesh couple to dinner, you invite Kenny and Katie because they're a married couple. Uh, they're one-flesh in property and legality. So some people on the ministry training course know Nick and Sarah. And if you went to Nick and Sarah's house, you would go to Nick and Sarah's house because the one-flesh involves uh, holding property together. Uh, children. The family is part of the one flesh. So Mark and Rachel have lovely children. Mark and Rachel bracketed together. You wouldn't say Mark has lovely children and incidentally Rachel has lovely children as well. You'd say Mark and Rachel as one unit. And for the future... So you would say, you wouldn't say Steve's retirement plans and Brenda's retirement plans. You'd say Steve and Brenda's retirement plans because you think of them as one entity. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? So I think, um, Maureen, you said, I always think of Phil and Maria. I think you said that the other day, didn't you? I don't think of Phil and Maria. I always think of Phil and Maria. As, as, as. So the... The oneness is more than the sexual aspect. It's, it's more than that. And cohabitation has some of that, but I don't think it has all of it. Uh, there are some legal realities, in fact, that if a cohabiting couple, and this was written, what I got for this was might have been... Uh, might be out of date in terms of the law, I'm not quite sure, but it's certainly it, at, at the time this was written, cohabiting does not confer joint ownership of property. So if you, if you move in with somebody, and let's suppose, um, terrible thing to think, that the somebody died, the next day you'd be homeless because you don't own that property, because the oneness hasn't extended to you owning the property. The death of one partner, the other may be left with nothing, not even a home. And children, cohabiting does not confer legal parenthood. So if there's a child, the child belongs to the mother, and the father is only part of that if there are special legal 
things that are said and done to make that the case. And again, should there be a, a splitting up, it, it may well be, and I'm not an expert on this, but it may well be that the father has no rights at all because, because there wasn't a complete one flesh. There was, it was a sort of incomplete uh, union. And of course, another thing about uh, a cohabiting relationship is that no divorce is necessary to end it. So if, you, if you're married, if, if, if it's been settled in the sense that we, are, we join ourselves together, this is true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, isn't it? It is of such a nature that ending it is a big deal. But if with cohabitation, you're living together, and to end it, presumably, somebody moves out. There's no formal procedure. There's no promises to unpromise. There's no uh, binding to unbind. There's no uh, legal connection to disconnect. No share out of property, no commitment to extricate from. So. It is different from being married, isn't it? It, it, it? The law looks at it that way. Not saying that our thinking should be governed by the law, but I think the law, it, it, the law isn't being stupid about this. It is it, reflecting something about the way that relationship is. Okay, okay so far? Anybody, could anybody update me on the legal situation? Is that correct? I mean, I... I Maybe nobody's. Okay, we've got two, two contributions from the floor. One says, I don't think it is correct, and one says, pretty well. I, I, there you are. It's a difficult position compared with being married. And I think that, that sort of sums it up, really. It's a difficult position compared with being married. Does the cohabiting father have any responsibilities for the children he's fathered within that relationship? Yeah, well, I, I thought I, he did. Yeah, I'm not an expert on but this. I'm not an expert. But so rights, it, no. But responsibilities, yes, perhaps. It might be the case. I think there would be child maintenance would be payable. I would imagine. But the the question of whether you can let's put it another way, it's a much more difficult than if the couple were married. And then there would be something more. And obviously, it would be a difficult if there's a divorce separation. But there's, you know where you are much more with a marriage situation than a cohabiting situation. Wasn't there recently um, a case of a couple that were cohabitating and the mother died and the children of the mother um, wasn't automatically allowed to stay with the partner of the mother because the father was around somewhere else. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that makes it even more complicated, doesn't it? And I, I, I don't know the incident that you're referring no, to, but, but I could it, well believe that there would be complexities of that thing, sort. Isn't it? It's a very complicated yeah. thing. Yeah. But, but I, I believe, and I'm not 100% sure, that if you cohabitate with someone, and as far as property is concerned... I think they have a right 
when the one dies now. I think the law has been changed well, recently. Well, the law, when I, when I got this off the internet, mm -hmm. it says the law is, going, is in process of being changed. All right. Now, where it is now, mm. I'm not a legal expert and I don't know exactly, mm. but I think we could be quite clear that it is much more complicated and much less clear for a cohabitation situation than a marriage situation. Ray, is it? Yeah, as I say, there is some case law, um, but it obviously means taking the situation to court, you know, yeah. the judge's opinion yeah. and decision. Yeah. Um, but it is a very difficult situation, and it can be expensive for lawyers' fees and so on. But yeah, yeah there, are, there, there is talk of changing the law, but I'm not sure that's processed yeah. as yet. Yes, but, and, and I sort of wonder if, if, if the law were changed so that when you, if you were to move in with somebody, you automatically take on these responsibilities and automatically take on these promises, whether people would say, well, I don't really want to do that because that's the very thing I'm trying to avoid. So here, here's, here's some thoughts. I see what you think about this. Why do couples enter this? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of speculating here uh, on what I think, and you might, I might, you might think I've got it completely up the spout. I think that people might say, well, we've moved in together because we or I, we are or I am not ready for marriage. So I say, well, I'm ready to move in, but I'm not ready for marriage, because I know that marriage is bigger and more complicated or something, more demanding perhaps, and I'm not ready for that, but I'm ready to move in. And I'm, I'm reinterpreting that as not ready to make a commitment. Well, actually, if you read it in terms of Ephesians 5, it'd be, I'm not ready to make the sacrifice. And I've, I've put some comments, and see what you think about this. I, I, I think that the, the Christian, whether a Christian would be in a position to say this outright, or whether you just think it, um, I think the response is, then according to God's wisdom, if you are not ready for marriage, you're not ready for, for this sexual relationship. Because entering, to, and, and entering into a cohabiting relationship will in fact not help but will just hinder. And I'm saying that from a Christian point of view because of my faith that God's way of doing things is the best way of doing things. And th this is not the best way of doing things. I don't know, does anybody want to comment on that? Do you think that that's a, a reasonable suggestion that people might say that? Have you ever heard anybody say that? I don't know. Yeah, our Sema could do I know a few couples that have lived together for a long time and when I've asked them why they didn't get married, they looked at me and said, we are, you know, yeah. we're living together, we've committed. I said, it's, and I said the same thing, you know, there's a commitment in marriage that there isn't in just living together. And they said, no, but we're committed. You can tell that we're committed. We've got children. We, you know, yeah. said that. So. Yes. Well, that's right. And I think 
so I the commitment may be actually very real but it is not expressed in the available vocabulary because there is a way of saying we're committed to each other in our culture there is a way of saying we're committed to each other which is to get married and the law recognizes that so this is why it, it's almost like being married, but it just lacks in some areas. And I think there's a lack of clarity because although the couple might know where they stand with each other, it isn't really expressed uh, comprehensively to the outside world, is it? You'd have to know them fairly well to know oh, they are committed to each other. So that, that, that's a sort of area in which cohabitation uh, is not quite the same as marriage. That's, that's what I think. Let's, let's go on and see whether you agree with me. Um, so here's a second thought. Um, people say, well, we would like to see whether we can uh, live together before we make a commitment. So it's a sort of trial marriage. So we'll see whether we can live together before we make a commitment. We'll see whether we're, we're compatible. Uh, it's a sort of experiment. Well, it is, isn't it? It's, it's a sort of experiment. We'll see what, see what the results are. So I've got two thoughts on this. One, compatibility is really not a biblical idea. The Bible doesn't say in the book of Proverbs, my son, make sure you're, you are compatible with your wife. Um, it says you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom it doesn't say anything about compatibility now clearly hmm, yeah, actually it's not clear at all I'll, I'll go back to what I was, I, I was going to say and I should say in our western system where the couples choose each other it's a very wise thing to get to know who it is you're going to marry to spend a time of courtship or, uh, and, and in a time of engagement while one gets to know one another. But the idea of compatibility is not really a very biblical idea. I mean, the reality of it is that whoever you marry, they're going to, they're going to be a sinner. And sinners are difficult people to get on with. And whoever you marry, they're going to find that you're a sinner. And you're going to have to find ways of forgiving one another, working things out together, uh, wh whoever you marry, really. That, that's just, just the way it is. And the, the idea of experimenting, I really doubt whether this is wise. Man-woman relationships, this sort of relationship like Christ and his church, these relationships are in need of the glue called commitment. And if you don't have the commitment, it's not going to work. So I tried to think of an example. So imagine you're building a house of bricks and mortar. Shall we try building the house with bricks but forget the mortar first? We'll just try building it just with bricks and no cement in between them just to see whether it will work, see whether the bricks are compatible. See what I'm trying to say? Uh, you can't do it that way because it's going to fall down. And to try and build a, r a relationship together without the commitment, 
that's, that's part of it. The, the, the saying, I take you to be my wife to have and to hold for, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, or whatever words are said, that's part of the glue that makes it work. It's a, it's a silly experiment to try without that. Did you see what I'm trying to say? Does that, that make sense? And here's a, a, a third one, that, which is almost like what, what, what um, Arsema said. Formal marriage is simply unnecessary. So Joni Mitchell, bless her heart, sang, We don't need no piece of paper from the city hall keeping us tied and true. We don't need no piece of paper from the city hall keeping... I can't do the rest of it. Beautiful song, terrible idea. And, and, and in fact, when she wrote that, she'd already been married. She'd abandoned her husband and her child for the sake of her singing career. And I think that haunted her uh, for many, many years afterwards. So even though she said that, it, it, it isn't even true in her own life. Uh, and what I would say is, well, you don't need a piece of paper. The paper achieves nothing, really. I mean, it achieves a record. In the Old Testament, people were married, and there's no hint of paper. It's the promises on the paper that are the thing. Uh, the promises on the paper that hold people together. The paper itself achieves nothing. It's the promises that the paper captures that mean everything. And God designed marriage to include explicit faithfulness. And when I say explicit, what I mean is it is spelled out, understood clearly what is being promised does that make sense? Hmm. Um, what about this fourth one? So I managed to get this spilling over two sheets by accident. So here's fourth one. We just drifted into it. So occasional sexual encounters evolved into staying over permanently and moving in together. Although, interestingly... The, you might well find that one partner keeps their own flat on as a sort of fail-safe. Uh, you know, know people like that, where they've, they've moved in together, but they still have two properties? And here's my comment, for what it's worth, that drifting into something seems to imply that drifting out is equally possible. And this falls short of the type of love that God has in mind for such relationship. So the God of the Bible is a total enthusiast for chesed, which is covenant love. It's committed love. It's count on me through thick and thin love. It isn't love that they accidentally drifted into and one day might accidentally drift out of. It is a definite, you can count on me forever and ever, amen, love. And this fails to, to encapsulate that. Or it fails to express it, let's put it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. And a fifth reason why people might be in cohabitation is that they're put off by the formality or the cost or the fuss of a wedding 
and I, I do tend to, my blood does tend to boil at the, the thought that you can only be married if you spend a king's ransom on getting married, you know, 10,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds, you know, a year's pay. And I think if people are put off by that, or if people set themselves up for that, and then say, well, we can't get married because we can't afford it, I think that's a huge, huge pity. Because wouldn't, wouldn't I be right in saying that just a few weeks ago with Zach and Darlene's wedding, we proved you can have a wonderful day and a wonderful wedding, and you don't have to spend hardly anything. Would that be right? Yeah. yeah and, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't want... You know, this is my comment to, the, to that. You can have a wonderful wedding. It doesn't have to cost the earth. You don't have to put yourself into uh, a mortgage for it. And also to say, a registry office wedding is just as much a wedding in the eyes of God. A registry office wedding is just as much a wedding. You're just as much married. Uh, a wedding ought to be special, but it doesn't need to cost the earth. Right, let me stop there and see whether anybody's got any other comments on that. So that, that section was why do people enter into this situation? Anybody got any other comments? So, Catherine? Uh, Samuel and I had to read this, this book. We were recommended to get this book um, on marriage for our premarital counselling, and it wasn't a Christian book. Um, it was written by these sort of sociologists who had studied um, marriage, lots of marriages and looked at what worked and what didn't work. So they were taking a purely pragmatic view and not a moral one. But um, a um, one of their big things was um, sort of on point two. It was said, they said that a sort of key to having a healthy relationship was decide, don't slide. And they were saying how, you know, people tend to just sort of drift into living together and then they can finally have children together and then they feel they're sort of committed, but they didn't really choose that because there wasn't a point at which they decided that and that can be quite unhealthy, which I thought was really interesting. Because as a Christian, I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> duh. <laughs> but it was interesting to see that all this sort of, you know, research was just bearing out what, uh, what we knew all along. So decide, don't slide. And that's a piece of wisdom about the, the health of a relationship. Yeah, they don't were just saying, slide into things, mm. but decide. And I think, that, I think that's helpful. I think that's helpful. I mean, to, to be, I suppose, maybe your friends are Sam and May said, well, we have decided to live together. We've decided to have children. Uh, and it is a commitment. And it's not something we've slid into. It's something we've decided. And you might say, well, that's very, very like marriage. Except you haven't actually told the rest of us by using the vocabulary that's available of standing up in front of everybody and saying your promises to each other so other people could hear. I think that, that would be how I'd think about it. Yeah, and another thing that this book said was that cohabitation prior to divorce, cohabitation prior to marriage was, statistically speaking, you're more likely to get divorced Stat after marriage. So, so this whole, oh, it helps you to prepare and get to know them doesn't hold up. No, okay. It, so it, it, statistically, it just yeah. seems to be the case that it doesn't help, it doesn't mean that you have a stronger marriage afterwards. Mm. It, 
So I, I, I remember one of my uh, dear colleagues at school, she lived with her whatever partner all the time I was uh, employed there and ever since. And only when she retired did she and her partner get married. And I think that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because they, they did recognize that there was something that they weren't. And in the end, they said, well, whatever it is, we want to be it. We want to get married. Right, so let's look at what is the biblical way. So, first, let's think of different scenarios. Let's think of Christian couples. So, here are boyfriend and girlfriend, if we're allowed to use that term, couple, and they say to the young adults group, we'd like to tell you we're moving in together and we hope you'll pray for us. And to them, I think the only thing to say is cohabitation is simply not an option for Christians who wish to follow the Lord. So if you're already a Christian and you're in a relationship with the opposite sex, the way forward is to emulate Christ and his church and to enter a sexual, committed, public relationship, which is, which is what marriage is. So I think that one, I have to say, I think is fairly clear-cut. For, for Christians who want to get together, you don't say to them, well, cohabitation, that's fine. You say, that's not the way forward. Don't slide, decide, think about it, pray about it, and you're going to take a step, a public, committed step. And we'll all pray for you in that. And the reason for it is that's the way Christ is with his church. It's an explicit promise entailing total committed relationship. Uh, and that, uh, so the, the, the one flesh, every, every way that we can be combined, uh, not only uh, sexually, but legally, financially, uh, in terms of where we live, in terms of how people relate to us, we, we want the whole, the whole thing, and that's marriage. So I, I pause for a moment to see if anybody wants to disagree, but I think that one's fairly clear-cut. Now, let's look for non-Christian couples. So, so now we think about people in the workplace. We think about perhaps members of the family. Um, think of, um, might even think of your parents. Uh, in a non-Christian state. So these are people who are not Christians. And th- to be frank, cohabitation may well be the reality that's, that's where they're at. Christian insight says it's not what the maker intended. And therefore, it would, be, it, it would not be surprising that it doesn't work as well. Because if the way the maker intended it is surely the best way. Now, people may have actually very 
durable and uh, I suppose we, we could say sort of healthy um, cohabiting relationships but I don't know whether you say that's the exception rather than the rule or it's by God's grace rather than anything else or, or whatever you say but marriage is God's way and that's what we would pray for wouldn't it for, for we'd pray for and if we had the opportunity we'd try and say that marriage is a creation thing and even though the people concerned are not Christians Christianity still has an insight to offer and it may well be rejected and you just have to work with the fact that it is rejected uh, what, what, what might be slightly what, what might be deficient well there's a, a possibly a lack of security because neither of them have actually made promises to one another in front of other people certainly a, a lack of legal recognition so unless they take special measures which perhaps may be that may be possible you know one if the male partner died would, would the female partner have tenure of the family home you know things like that and a lack of clarity for the rest of the family. Do we treat these as husband and wife? Do what do we treat them as? Um, well, things like that. And this would be the case for many of us in terms of family members and friends. So how do we treat them? We treat them as people that we love and honour, made in God's image, people for whom we continue to pray and we want the best. Uh, so if they come from a distance and want to stay, do we say, uh, here's the room that we would give to our married friends to stay in, and we're going to treat you as if you're more or less married. We know that you're not quite married, but for, this, for the sake of argument, we'll treat you as if you are married. It's a difficult one, isn't it? And So that's the thing about people who are not Christians who are cohabiting, and that's about as far as I could get with that. Does anybody want to offer any comments? Any thoughts that people have? Just kind of picking up on previous stuff here. It's a bit perverse in a way that the law is definitely changing into a direction that creates cohabiting as enjoying equal rights with marriage. That, that's the drift of the law, isn't it? Apparently. And that's where it seems to be going in Britain in 2014. And we're not talking about the rest of the world here, but it's a strange thing. So the, the, the distinctiveness which was true of marriage, is being eroded from a different starting point. Yeah. So, in the end, the issues to do with security are possibly, probably going to be dealt with, and there'll be certain judgments put on it, like, well, if you've been together for six years, and if you know, you've got two stable children who, who've passed a psychological test at school, then... Presumably your relationship is strong enough, therefore we'll put a tick in the box and you can be in a place where the 
property would definitely go to your wife. Well, you wouldn't have a wife, it would be cohabited, whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of all heading in that direction. So those di distinctions between marriage and cohabiting are being eroded in practice, yeah. but starting from a different standpoint. So the ground shifts. The ground shifts, and it would be different in different cultures. That's why I said right at the beginning that the definition I was using was to say that there is still available to the couple an option to say we are married, which option they are not taking. And as things move, it might be more like ancient Rome, where the, the, the state wasn't, apparently, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, was, wasn't that bothered on, in, in saying, well, they're, they're married, they're not married. It was just a sort of thing that you drifted into and drifted out of. And, of course, there's a cost to that, isn't there? Because you say um, the, the law gives those rights to the cohabitee as if they were married. I'm just trying to think this through on my feet. Surely the, one of the tendencies of that is to remove security from the whole idea of marriage. So if we make it fit with cohabiting... What do we say? If you've spent more than a week together, you can have such and such amount of the property, or if you've spent six years together. And if it isn't the way that that would come to match with marriage to reduce the security that you can have within marriage, I don't know, I'm just talking off the top of my head, but it's not helpful, is it? It's not. It's not helpful to, to people to feel secure, to know that they've taken a step into security and deliberately done so. It's not, it, I mean to say it's not helpful because it removes from people's thinking the, the thought, here is a commitment I am deciding to make, here is a step I am publicly taking. That becomes less and less of an option. Yeah because you can drift and end up in the same legal situation. I, I suppose this, this becomes quite complex for us because we all think of individual situations. And by the same token that we can have people who are in the categories of, I've just drifted into it, it's clearly not going to be working. On the other hand, we can all think of situations where people are just completely happy to be in that and they've got very strong, stable relationships. Yeah. Equally, on the marriage side, there are people who get married for the, um, uh, for the dream. Yeah. And they make statements, yeah. which are done in public and are legal. Yeah. Yeah. But if you were to, to sort of measure the heart and the measure of commitment, you'd say, well, <laughs> how much did you really mean that? Equally, there are there are undoubtedly people who make their vows in a registry office with a complete clarity and maturity. Mm. So it, there's this enormous spectrum that sort of overlaps. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. I think what, what, as Christians, we want to try and move to is enhancing clarity and moving towards like Christ and his church. So, but as you say, there's all sorts of mixed up situations on either side of that boundary. Um, 
but that's the sort of world that we live in and it's not the way things are moving is not helping It's very clear and very easy to say to a Christian, um, this is the way, mm. you know, this is the right way to before God. Yep. And the Christian will want to do the right thing. But can you honestly say to non-believers, you have to live by these rules? No, I don't think we can say you have to live by these rules, but what we can say is, you can say, right, begin quote, I'm a Christian. I believe Christianity has a particular insight into the real meaning of marriage. If I may be permitted to share this with you, I believe on that basis that your relationship will be much stronger, much better, much more like the way God made it to be if rather than cohabiting, you take serious thought as to whether you want to make the commitment of marriage because it works better and the statistics bear it out, actually, full stop. So you brought God into that? I did. That yeah. um, conversation. Because it's a and Christian insight. Yes, it's a yeah. Christian insight, but it's a Christian insight. I'm not arguing the case i'm just mm. saying as a christian to another christian you can make it very clear yeah this is wrong this is right yeah to a non-believer how can we expect them to live by you know well i suppose it's because that what we're saying is we've got an insight into a creation ordinance mm. so bottom line is that God has hardwired marriage into the humanity and if you look through all the different cultures and all the different history everybody has an, a grasp of what marriage is what cheating is what unfaithfulness is and so on the one hand you've got what's inside people's consciences they all the no so that's one angle of it. And what we're saying is that we as Christians have got an insight and we can speak into that and tell people this is, this is what's going on inside your heart and mind on this matter of marriage. This is how it's meant to work. This is the best way for it to work. But I don't think we've got any more leverage than that. I don't think we have in, in to say, you must live by Christian standards. I don't think we can say that. John, what do you think? I, well, I was just going to come at the same thing from another angle. I don't think that's the first thing I would want to say to a non-Christian couple. I think the first thing I want to say to a non-Christian couple is, what about coming along to hear about Jesus and then expect this to follow mm. rather than be the, mm. I mean... I, I think it would be taken as with some resentment if I, I mean, I'm thinking of a particular family situation mm. and uh, I think that would be received with resentment if I said that but if I took the opportunity to say oh look there's an American gospel choir on Monday week why don't you come along and they listen to the gospel I think that, w that would just be my first priority mm. yep thank you I don't want you to get me wrong I actually don't believe that a Christian 
can and should say to a non-believer, this is the way you should live. Um, you know, you need to get married. But I also believe that um, just saying to them, you know, marriage is a good thing, and, you know, for the children, for yes. all the other yeah. legal reasons and things, yes, marriage is a good thing, and it is a commitment, whether people acknowledge it or not. It does make a difference to whether you're living together or whether you're actually married. Yeah, I, th I, think, I think it does. And there's the sort of, um, yeah, there is a difference. There is a difference, yeah. I think you could say to people that, um, uh, to a couple who say cohabiting, and I mean, if they were to ask the question, what do, what do you think about um, cohabiting? Um, you, you might say something like, well, um, Christians think that um, marriage is the best way to go in these areas because um, marriage is like, um, is, is like a, a picture of Christ and the church. And then you could explain what Christ and the church means and the relationship between mm. Christ and the church. And marriage is like that. Um, and it involves commitment, involves Christ's commitment to yeah. to the church, like yeah. the husband's commitment to the wife. Yeah. So um, you, you don't have to make it personal. So no, you, you, you want to, to, you want to say, want you want to say it in a winsome way if yeah. you have the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And of course, one could also say that although this is a particular Christian insight, it isn't only Christianity that would take a strong view of marriage. So Islam, according to Amar, our students, says this is one of the pillars of Islam, um, you know, fidelity within marriage. This is what was the... Let's not go there. Right, I've got a couple of other things to look at as well before we all uh, turn into pumpkins. Right, so now here's, an, here's one. One member of a cohabiting couple becoming a Christian. One member of a cohabiting couple become a Christian. What do we say if we're asked for advice? What advice do we give? And here's a question. How much undoing is wise and good? So that's a, that's a question which I think is, is reasonably helpful. The Bible is realistic in that it doesn't expect us to go back 20 or 30 years and undo things that have been, you know, a, a well in the past, shall we say. So just have that thought in mind. So for example, if this couple have lived like our Semmers friends as a couple for 20 years and they've got seven children, what would be the, the wisest Christian counsel to this convert, should you say, let's suppose it's the, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's the mother, do you say, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to break this off, you've got to leave your, um, leave your partner, you've got to leave your children because that's the Christian way forward. Is it wise and good? That's trying to undo 
20 years of something, which was almost marriage, but I think we've agreed it wasn't marriage, but it was almost marriage, would it, wouldn't it be better to say what you should be looking for is not trying to undo 20 years, but move forward to fulfilling and completing this and prayerfully saying to your partner, I'd really love to be married now, I'm a Christian. Would you like to have a think about this? Something like that. Um, I think I've probably got myself out of order on this. If they had been married, a believer and an unbeliever, Paul would not say, undo that. He would say, okay, you're married to an unbeliever. I wouldn't advise you to enter that, but you're in it now. And unless the unbeliever walks out, your job is to witness to your partner and seek to bring them to Christ. And I wonder whether the wisdom of that situation is to say to the person, it's not exactly the same, but it's very, very much like it. And rather than to say to you, your act of Christian discipleship is to leave your partner of many years and leave your children of many years or whatever, to say, think of yourself as married, really, and see whether in prayer your partner might not join you in that and see whether you can play the part of a, a, of a Christian wife to win your partner and your children. This, this, that's my thought on that. If they'd been living together for two weeks and you just had two weeks to undo, you might well say to somebody, now you're a Christian, I really think that you should try and put an end to this relationship because um, you know, it's quite feasible to undo two weeks in the way that you can't undo 20 years. And I, we can think of people, can't we? So there might be somebody who is living uh, cohabiting and for them the, this is the crucial issue of discipleship the point at which repentance really begins to bite you want to be a Christian this is the one thing that's standing in your way you read your Bible you actually go to church you're a member of the youth group you serve in Sunday school although goodness knows how they let you do that um, you're, uh, you're baptized you've done all those things but the one thing that's needful is for you to get this relationship right because it isn't. And that might well be a crucial point. Uh, The believer might request marriage of the unconverted partner but would not be in a position, I think, to demand it. it. It really does... So that's why the question of how much you have to undo is... is, uh, is important so uh, so I could envisage cases where you would really say the way ahead is to encourage the completion of the process by formalizing the marriage rather than undoing what really can't be undone so you can't unhave seven children can you Uh, whatever and no, I think I'm repeating myself here. So you'd say, yes, well, what this normalizing would do would be marrying an unbeliever to a believer, which is, uh, in my reading of it, unequally yoked, which is not a situation that you're supposed to enter into if you've got the option. But I'm saying that this, this 
a hypothetical situation would be more like the situation of an unbeliever already married to a believer, not required to divorce, but rather to win over via witness. So that was the situation of one partner of a cohabiting couple becoming a Christian. Could I ask a question at that point? Yes. Um, if you have um, a bel- microphone, yeah. Okay. Two people who are cohabiting, yeah, and one becomes a Christian, yep. Um, but the partner doesn't agree to marriage. Yep. The unbelieving partner doesn't agree to marriage. How would that? Where, where would that leave that Christian? partner. Well, that's exactly the question, isn't it? So, I think it depends on the situation. So, if they're like Arsema's friends, and they've been married, they haven't been married, they've been together for 20 years, Mm. and they've got children, and it's a stable relationship. So, I'll put my colours down. I think the sensible, godly thing would be to say, let's assume it's to the, the mother, to say, You stick with these people because you're married in a sense. It's not complete, it's not not ideal, but it's more like you do more damage by upping and leaving than you would by staying and praying and trying to win. Mm. So that would be, you see, so that's one end of the spectrum. But if, as I'm saying, if, if this is a, a situation that doesn't have all that um, history to it, you know, it might well be that the, the person w- would, you know, the Lord would say to that person, this is the one thing I need to, to, to extricate myself from this relationship. And that's, that's the thing that I need to do. So, yeah. So Catherine was going to say... Yeah, she was going to say something. Just, sorry. Oh, um, right. I just finished by... Um, I just wanted to say then that that person who is now a Christian, mm. would they have to see themselves as living in sin? Well, this is, this is it, isn't it? Oh. It's, it's a very difficult situation. So which is, there are some situations where it's very difficult not to sin whatever you do. Mm. And it's a question of which will be the le- would it be a greater sin to abandon the children mm. and this partner who, although not a Christian, has been faithful? Mm. And, you know, I think in God's eyes, you could say he has played the part of a husband, yeah. would, would that, which would be the greater sin. Mm. Uh, and so I, 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 I'm, I'm putting down my... Mark and say, I can envisage situations where it would be a greater sin to get up and leave than it would to, to continue in the relationship. Yeah. I was just going to say, <clears throat> in a situation where people have been married, I mean, surely you don't even need to say, if people, pe- sorry, if people have been living together and have children together but aren't married, surely you don't even need to say, well, you're almost married. You could just say, you are yoked. I mean... Yeah, if you have a child, you're jolly well yoked to somebody, yeah. like it or not. So, but then, my, but then that, that was making me think, like, 
because in, in your first example, the couple have been together for 20 years and have seven children. The second, they've been together for two weeks. So, I mean, it, in the case of a childless cohabiting couple, yeah. see, because I, I think, I, think I, I don't know, I personally feel like a child constitutes a yoke, but living together, even for a very... <laughs> seriously, but, but even like living together for a really long time, is that the same as having a child? Well, I don't, I don't think the child... I think the child just is, is a, um, an additional factor in terms of responsibilities. I don't think a, a child makes, makes a marriage. I don't think you, you're not really married until you have children. I don't think we would go that way. And if you think of people who are beyond childbearing age who, who might um, be in a cohabiting relationship and you say, that's more like a marriage than, than not. So, I think there's room for some judgment here, Steffi. Um, I was just thinking about um, when it, it talks um, to masters and slaves, mm. and um, it, it talks to the masters, and it doesn't say, um, chuck out your slaves, because it's wrong to, um, to take part in slavery, which it is, and the, Bible is clear on that, but it, talk, it says to the masters, be kind to your slaves, and um, then I think it does say um, in so many years free them, does it? Well, the, the Old Testament parameters oh. had a year of jubilee, but in the New Testament, I don't think in Rome society would, there would have been a uh, provision to free the slaves necessarily, oh, okay. although the slave might have the opportunity to buy their freedom well, I was thinking it's a bit like being in an unmarried relationship. It's not um, because, I mean, obviously it's wrong to have a slave, but um, in that society or if, if you're stuck in that situation, um, it says to be a witness rather than... Yeah, thank you. Yes, yes, that's helpful. Yes, so it's a situation which is not... Is not ideal and in, in a sense is, is wrong, but you're supposed to stay in it and make the best of it, yes. Yeah, um, I agree, this is a complex situation. Um, I haven't fully made my mind up about it, but I'm still a bit uncomfortable with that, the idea that you can stay with somebody despite not being married to them. You know, Jesus says, doesn't he, um, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his, own, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I know we need to understand that in context, but Jesus also talks about leaving, doesn't he, children, um, wives for his sake, and reward, a reward that will come from that. Now, obviously, I know we need to take this in context, but there is a, is a case that you say, well, I love the Lord so much that I'm willing to sacrifice this relationship to show it, it could be a great testimony to your partner by moving out and saying, I'm, I'm so devoted to the Lord Jesus, so, so you know, devoted to this new life, that I'm willing to, to move out and sacrifice the comfort and security of this relationship. And what a testimony that could be to the partner. But hang on, my, my partner is really serious about this, rather than willing to compromise. So I'm still debating the matter. But, you know. Yeah, well, that's a, thank you, Ben. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Um, hmm. Where do our responsibilities lie before the Lord? So I think the, the quote that you gave really does need to be put into context because it doesn't say, if you're a married person, that it really is super spiritual to say to your wife 
and your children, I am so much following the Lord, I'm going to leave you lot, and um, I'm going to be a missionary. It, 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 Buddha did that, and I don't think it's to his credit that he left his wife to go off and be spiritual. And Augustine did that because he had um, a non-married relationship with a woman. He had a child called Adeodatus. And when he became a Christian, he left her and left his child. And I'm not sure that it was to his credit to do so. You know, and I think it is a difficult one. But personally, I would, I think in a sense, there is the individual conscience before the Lord. And I would personally not find it in my heart to say to somebody who'd been in a cohabiting relationship, a stable, loving, uh, responsible relationship, to say to them, it is clear that your Christian discipleship obliges you to leave this relationship. I, I, I don't think I could find it in my heart to say that. I'm still not convinced that however long you've been with that person, that constitutes a marriage in, in any kind of sense. Well, yeah, it, I think that's what we've been saying. It is different from marriage. But cohabitation can be very like marriage. So are there situations in which it would be <clears throat> the, 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 the sort of vexed question of what my responsibility is would be better informed by saying you're pretty much in a marriage to an unbeliever rather than to say you are living in a sinful relationship which you must leave. You know, which is the way to look at it? And we, and we do know that if, if it was a marriage to an unbeliever, the believer is not charged with saying, because I want to live the spiritual life, I'm going to leave you. In fact, the other way around. So the responsibility on the believer is to stay and try and make that marriage work. So that, that's, that, that's my thoughts on that. But it is tricky and you know we pray lord lead us not into temptation please don't give us situations that are so difficult that we we don't know which way to to turn on them do you want to do uh, times getting on but um here's here's another one a cohabiting couple together become christians a cohabiting couple together become christians what would you say to them? Now, I, I would say to them, the way forward for you is not to try and undo what's in the past, but to complete it and to say, uh, if you're real with the Lord, you need to be married, you need to get married, uh, to formalize that. And then the question would be, during the process of completing this, would it be required that the couple live, perhaps for a while, as if they were two single individuals? Well, uh, in terms of the length of the relationship, so you could do this thing where you say, well, 
if they've been together for 20 years, would you say, no, you say you, you, you're pretty much married. Okay, well, so it was 10 years. Well, that was five years. And you, you see how difficult it would be. And I think judgment would have to, you would have to really pray for good judgment on that, I think. Maria? The cohabiting relationship um, would come under the banner of uh, the, the, the umbrella of sin, maybe, uh, within the, in the Christian context. Uh, but then there's sin all around us, isn't there? So, in, in a sense, it's another sin. But we are supposed to forgive sin, aren't we, in other people? Well, we are supposed to forgive sin. I think Steffi's point is helpful because the slave and master is in some sense a sinful system. Mm. Yeah. But the, the, the slave doesn't, isn't blamed by the Lord for being a slave and the master isn't blamed for being a master. What they're told is to make, uh, to, to live within that system in a Christianized way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought on that. So I better stop talking. I'm just um, uh, thinking of this cohabiting situation. Mm. And I wonder whether it's, if one of them became a Christian, then it could be rather helpful to explore the degree to which they have a commitment to one another. So the things which characterize marriage have to do with a commitment that says... We put it in our words till death us do part. That's one of those commitments to have and to hold. This day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. For, to what extent are all those things true in this particular relationship? If those things happen to be true in that relationship, they haven't actually gone through the process of saying that out loud in public, and I think that would be great if they were to do so. But it might be quite encouraging to them to be able to understand the the extent to which that is actually the case for them already. Yeah. It's, I think it's a, it's a, a bit more... Um, just measuring the years, like John was saying, depends how long they've been together, would be one thing. Exploring the quality of what they understood by those years might be a, actually a very helpful thing to do. So I think there's, a, there's, 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 there's judgment and work and patience to be put in. Difficult situation, isn't it? Let's pray together.